0: Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production, available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One.
1: I'm Rebecca Rothstein, and sitting in today is my co-host, Kim Garner. We'd like to welcome you to Say It Forward. Each week, we'll be doing one of my favorite things to do and that's interviewing interesting people with out-of-the-ordinary life stories. They're all people who took a different path in life. Some never imagined the heights they would achieve, and others, well, they turned their childhood dreams into reality. So let's begin. Our guest today is living proof that you can escape the bad hand that life deals you. Kylan Moore found himself growing up in the scary and dangerous city of Compton in Los Angeles. It became famous for rappers Kendrick Lamar, M.C. Wren, Eazy-E, and Dr. Dre. But it also became notorious for gang violence and murder. It was a rough beginning for the kid who spent many nights lying awake, but who overcame all obstacles and turned his life around. He is a poster boy for every kid deprived of hope in downtrodden communities, and he credits his mother for fleeing an abusive husband as Kylan embraced her faith in God and education. This helped him avoid the gang violence, and he went on to excel on the football field and in the classroom, eventually becoming an author, a speaker, and a Rhodes Scholar. Along the way, he co-founded a student organization that brought college athletes into underserved classrooms as inspirational speakers, role models, and mentors. His eye-opening inspirational story proves that there is no such thing as a dream too big, which became the title of his new book. So let's rewind to the beginning and say it forward with Kylan Moore. So let's start at the beginning, because your story is incredible, and for such a young person to be so accomplished is just mind boggling. I mean, you're 25 years old, right? <laughs> so, and your life has been incredible. So let's start at the beginning. Sure. You were born in.
2: I was born in Hollywood, California, at Kaiser Permanente, uh, not too far <laughs> from here, actually. And then um, my family, we moved out to Fontana in Moreno Valley, you know, upper middle class lifestyle, you know, uh, white picket fence type of, you know, type Mm -hmm. of life. And um, my parents were married for nine years. Um, It was a really bad divorce. So then that's what caused us to move to the borderline of Compton and Carson, uh, where my grandmother lived. And we moved in with her because my mom, she was finishing law school at the time and just wanted a safe environment to be, you know, to be in uh, away from my father. Not necessarily safe in terms of, like, the area we're in, but safe against, like, you know, the threat of, you know, violence and things like that that my father was threatening at the time. So, so
1: you're the oldest of three.
2: I'm the middle child. Oh, you're the middle yeah, child. Middle child. I have an older sister, younger brother. Mm-hmm.
1: So I read in the book that when you were living uh, the first part of your life, when you mm-hmm. were living in Fontana— That you were living in a lovely little neighborhood and that you went to school there Mm -hmm. and everybody lived sort of an idyllic and peaceful life at that point. Was your father already starting to become – should I use the word difficult to describe your father or did that happen later?
2: I think that was those that, that experiences of him being, you know, difficult or, or you know, abusive, if, if I must use the word. Yeah, it's a better uh, word than difficult. Right. It's more, more appropriate. Yes, I think those things, you know, were checkered through the entire the relationship, perhaps, and things that, you know, for whatever reason, my mom didn't identify or didn't think would, you know, materialize into a big problem. And as you know, things, you know, tend to snowball if you don't address them early on, in particular in a relationship as it pertains to communication. So I think it was already, you know pretty bad you know up so she was
1: point. young and love fell for a guy had a family and didn't really see the telltale signs of him becoming the guy that he became precisely
2: i think yeah. a lot of women can relate to that experience you know especially looking at divorce rates in the united states i think a lot of people are familiar with that you know you think someone's one way and they're not
1: yeah well we, we can all kid ourselves and tell ourselves stories about just about anybody until <laughs> they really show themselves but your mom is super smart Mm-hmm. You know, went to night school, got a degree, is, became a lawyer. Mm-hmm. So uh, is it correct in assuming that the intellectual side of your existence came from your mom or was your dad a smart guy also?
2: Oh, a very smart guy left-handed individual very artistic can draw mm. I remember one time he cut a lion into the side of my head with a um he was a barber at the time and you know my job uh, my father he, he held many positions like he was a firefighter he was a police officer for a time so he's a smart guy uh, too just like my mom
1: so you got intellect on both sides of your family
2: uh yes I would but, say so for sure and
1: your mom put a lot of value on getting an education mm-hmm. there was no discussion about whether or not you were or weren't going to school <laughs> you were going to school
2: right it wasn't if you go to college it's which one? That's what she used to always say.
0: How did you notice that young? Because it's a big it's a tipping point in your life from the school you went to in Compton when you like went to grade school from when you were in Fontana. So talk to us a little bit about your perception of education within you. Because you talk about that in the book.
2: Right. So um for me I've always, you know, been like a very, I guess, intellectually curious person. So I remember even in kindergarten, um, I came home from school. And I asked my mom, you know, one time I came home from school and I had done my assignment already and I was crying. And my mom said, why are you crying, baby? And I said, it's because I already finished my homework. And my teacher said to do my homework at home. So my mom saved up for a couple of months and purchased our first computer. And she started making me assignments at home that I can do because I was just, you know, very hungry for knowledge. You know, I just carried that into, you know, every academic, you know, thing that I've been in, you know, so far. It's just like that hunger for learning, for wisdom, for hearing different perspectives from challenging myself. So, you know, it didn't matter if I was in Merino Valley or if I or if I was in Compton. As you said, um, you know, I, I had a certain hunger for growth and for learning. It's just in one area is a lot more opportunities to do that. And, and in one in another area, it was a lot less.
0: When did you start to learn to read? In kindergarten? Were you starting uh, to do your, you know, your alphabet and your letters?
2: No, I was an early reader. Um, My sister was an early reader. I was, too. Um, I was one of those kids that learned to read around, like, three or four years old. Wow. You know, early childhood literacy is one of the greatest ways to fight gang violence. <laughs> so, yeah, I was, I was a super early reader.
1: It's so true. I was like that, too. I was reading at that age, too. I could not get enough yeah. I would love to read. Exact, love to read. This exactly. is why when I sat down last night with your book, I read the whole book all the way through. Because <laughs> I love to read and I find it to be I mean, particularly things that are interesting, like your mm-hmm. story was so wow, interesting to you. me. Okay, so let's go back. So now we're living in Fontana. Your mm-hmm. dad's obviously given your mother a major headache. Right. And and you guys a major headache. Mm-hmm. And so when your mom moved, was did she move in the dark of the night or did she say to him, I'm out of here and I'm leaving and I'm going to go? Through? She went to her mom, right? Uh-huh. Your grandmother is her mother, yes. not your father's mother. Yes, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Did you know your father's mother and father? Mm-hmm.
2: Oh, yeah, I know both of them.
1: And how did they feel about all of this stuff going on with him? I was
2: never able to you know, hear their perspective or anything like that. I know... Um, On my father's side of the family, you know, it's a lot of turmoil, just like we have in many families. And for my father, he was, you know, he was abused as a child and he never, you know, really felt like he had the opportunity to talk those things through with his mom. He never had that emotional and that spiritual healing that you talk about. So from that, you know. Um, hurt people hurt people so that's what caused mm-hmm, a lot wow. of these things for him and um so yeah we did just as to answer your first question we left in the in the dark of the night my father he was um i think like a mason or something like that and he had like a conference in las vegas so he went off to the conference my mom packed up that u-haul truck and took herself and her children you know to and went to your grandma Uh huh.
1: and was your grandmother happy you guys came
2: oh that's a good question Maybe, maybe not. The, <laughs> the house was already filled with a lot of people, you know, a lot of people. And that then four
1: were, more people show up. Right. And three yes. of them were little people. Right. Yeah. <laughs>
2: exactly. So I'm certain, you know, just as a loving parent, but you're probably a little frustrated that, you know, your your children's relationships aren't working out and stuff like that. I can see you being frustrated about that. I would imagine
1: yeah. she told her, uh, told your mom not to marry him in the first place. I don't know. Uh-huh. I don't know. In terms we of wisdom. to know these things. In terms of
2: wisdom. <laughs> I'm saying, I, I don't know if she'll do that. In terms of wisdom for relationships. 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 People are not very receptive to other people speaking into their relationships. This is just my own experience of what I've seen. People don't seem very receptive to saying, hey, man, that that guy might not be the best for you. That girl might not be the best for you. People are very rebellious to this. So I don't know what the dynamic is.
0: How old old were you when you moved to Compton?
2: I was six years old.
0: So six, you. And so tell us a bit about that experience. I mean, what night Mm -hmm. and day moving there into a house with a bunch of other people in a completely different neighborhood. In a single room Mm
1: -hmm. with four people. Right. Yeah, it was. It was
2: such a a shock for me, a culture shock, so to speak. Um, I remember, you know. Hearing, you know, for the first time, hearing what like a gunshot sounded like, and I was like, "Whoa!" It was like incredibly loud for me, for my ears. And but the loudest things at night for me were hearing like rats and roaches moving in between the walls. And then you're scared to, you know, drop something on the side of the bed that you share with three other people. Because you don't want something to bite you. You know, you start, uh, I learned how to, you know, take bucket baths and how to, you know, hand wash clothing because we didn't have a washing machine. You learn how to, um, when you don't have plumbing and, and, and pipes and, and stuff like that under the sink, wow. you learn how to take a bucket and, and take it outside. Um, the way we live, you know, I, I experienced, um, you know, American poverty, which you know, it will be comparable to, to third world and second world poverty. Mm-hmm. And it was just like so strange for me, like just seeing that stark contrast. I didn't quite understand it. You know, it, it's it's hard to understand. You know, you don't ask too many questions. You kind of just trust the adults around you. But, um, yeah, I, I didn't even realize we didn't have much. I just knew something wow. was off. I knew, you know, it just seemed a little bit more dangerous, a little bit more edgy, and it seemed a little bit less supportive of big dreams.
1: And you were six.
2: Six years old, yes.
1: Yeah. Think about that. You have a little one now. Think about it, six years old, having to be in that circumstance. Right. Very right. tough. But you didn't let it get you down. You didn't let it crush you. You didn't let it crush your spirit. And from what I understand and what I read is your mother kept you on the straight and narrow. Right. And your mother kept your brother on the straight and narrow. And your mother kept your sister on the straight and narrow. There was right. no – education was first and foremost. And being a family unit sounded like right. it was, was – it when and during all of this time – what was your dad doing? Did he know where you guys were?
2: Oh yeah, of course, right.
1: He did? He um, assumed that your mom went to her mom?
2: Uh yeah, for sure. Like my mom, um I think I think I talk about this in the book if I'm not mistaken too. Let me think. Yeah. Like my mom had gotten uh, because of threats of violence from my father, like, yo, if you take the kids or if you leave me, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. So my mom ended up getting a restraining order against my dad, you know, just for, you know, fear of her own thing. And I talk about it, too, in the book where, you know, we will walk outside and we will find like a dead cat uh, sitting in a sock, you know, on top of my mom's car, like as a threat. Yeah. You know, it'll be yeah. a cat with like a little bullet pushed into his head or something like that so yes he, he knew like it was just a lot going on at his, wow. as a child like I just remember as a child um being s- stressed out like I remember I even um like pulled the hairs out of the middle of my head um like around like when I was eight years old and I didn't understand then I just I couldn't understand what was causing me to pull my hair out I was just so stressed as a kid I pulled my own hairs out it was crazy
0: I bet because it's a lot to take on in a whole different environment. Um, you, you were just talking with Rebecca that it didn't break your spirit and you're a very hopeful, mm-hmm. hopeful guy. What was it about that within you at that time? You mm-hmm. go from, you know upper middle class mm-hmm. to this really rough mm-hmm. neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, things are different. How did it not How did you like hang on to who you were mm-hmm. through all of that? I
2: think just to be completely transparent and honest, I think I did have times where my spirit was broken, or times where you're depressed cuz you don't get the nice tennis shoes right. and you can't have your friends come over to play and you know you don't, you know, just get things that other kids get your, you know, Christmas. I learned how um how beautiful Christmas trees can look without presents under them cuz you're not really getting anything for Christmas. So I think there were times where I got, you know, incredibly discouraged, to be honest with you. I think as time progressed, you know, I got opportunities to, you know, uh, express myself through sports or, you know, to 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 join some type of club or activity uh, in school or things like that. And those are things that were like saving graces for me. But there were definitely days where I did hang my head in shame or embarrassment or, you know, you know, or whatever the case is when you just feel like, whoa, like, I guess I'll never make it out the, you know, out the hood. I think I did have a lot of times like that, you know, to be honest.
1: But with throughout you. all of it, you kept learning and you kept pushing your education. Mm-hmm. So some part of you had to have known that that was the way out.
2: Mm, maybe. I think some part of me, that's a, I like how you said that. I think so, some part of me hoped that that was the way. Right. out. But I had known, uh, you know, young men and young women that had died from strayed bullets. Right, that weren't intended for them, but they got hit with them and then died. So I had known, even if I am extremely hopeful in this situation, I still may not. There make was a it, lot right? of risk, right? Yeah. There's, there's a lot more that goes into it from just my own personal. You know, there's, there's a lot more. What if, you know, I don't get into the right, you know, magnet program, or what if they don't decide to bust me out to, you know, that school in Rancho Palos Verdes? How will I get there? And you know, all these things. It was so many different factors to where I was extremely hopeful that education was the way out. Um, but even that seemed incredibly unlikely. Like when I, um, when I think about it. I don't think I could go back as a kid, as a six-year-old, and become a Rhodes Scholar again. And I'm saying this as me. I don't think I could repeat it. Because? It was, it was so many different things that had to fall in perfect alignment. You know, in order for me to get into uh, to Dotson and Retro Verdes, I Verdes, um, I applied at first. I applied past the deadline. And um, I missed the opportunity to take the, sit- uh, the school bus there that where they come to my neighborhood to pick me up. So I had to take two city buses to get out there. What if I had got stabbed? What if I something bad happened on the way to that city bus? What if, you know, who knows what could have happened? Who knows what could have happened if I didn't get into my high school, you know, verbum day? And, you know, who knows? There's just so many different factors that were almost out of my control to where I say I'm incredibly blessed to have, you know, survived and, you know, made it out of those things to live to tell the tale to make us reflect on what we need to change.
1: Do you think that you suffered at all or do suffer now from PTSD?
2: Um. Wow, so they I read a study somewhere, somebody was telling me this, this guy named Pete Dominic. Um he said that many people in like inner city areas suffer from PTSD Mm -hmm. as in when you uh the same way you see people that are fighting uh in the military and they hear loud bangs or somebody you know blow something up they'll hit the ground you'll see the exact same thing somebody be sitting down watching a movie late at night and then somebody will toss a firecracker and then people will get down and get low and it's like I've I've had experiences like that I've seen that to where I can easily see you know me being classified as someone that's in that group of people I mean you're
1: eight nine ten years old living in an area where gunfire was a common sound. Mm-hmm. You know, I never hear gunfire where I live. Right. And you're hearing gunfire where you live at, at that time in yeah, your life It's every horrible
2: day. to hear gunfire. We shouldn't live in areas where you hear gunfire. No, though.
1: no. And I really it's want terrible. to talk about what we were talking about earlier today about gang violence and mm-hmm. what's going on. I really want to talk about that. But right now I want to talk about you. Okay. So <laughs> you said, and forgive me if I get the quote wrong. Oh, no worries. But when all. I was reading your book last night, um, I know this much a little bit, maybe this much about Tupac Shakur. Right. <laughs> and um, But recognize, I mean, this guy was arguably, obviously killed way too early in his life, but he was a messiah of sorts. He's genius. Unbelievable genius. like genius. Like, um, like Kendrick Lamar. Yeah, he is. You know, Clearly is geniuses. Unbelievable. Mm-hmm. He's from Compton, by the way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you talked, you, you had a quote of his. Mm-hmm. About a rose, will you please say the quote and and talk about why, you know, why the impact it had on you? Because it was fantastic.
2: Absolutely. It was like a Tupac poem. And he said something along the lines I'm paraphrasing. He said, paraphrasing, he said, have you heard of the rose that grew from the crack in the concrete, proving nature's law is wrong? It learned to walk without having feet. Funny it seems, but by keeping its dreams, it learned to breathe fresh air. Long live the rose that grew from the crack in the concrete when no one else ever cared. And for me, it's an incredibly uh, wow. potent and powerful um, poem because if you walked by, you know, today, if you walked outside of your house or walk from the studio and you see a rose growing where there is no soil, there is no seed, you know, there is there is no sunshine, and you see that rose uh, growing in that area, you would marvel at the sight. At
0: against all odds. Against yeah. all odds. Mm-hmm. And when you see
2: me, that's what you see. You see someone that pulled themselves up. From their sock straps because they didn't have boots in order to pull themselves up from. So the, these are these are the type of things and there's many roses just like myself, you know. So that that's yeah. is one of the uh, things that really inspired me about uh, Tupac Shakur. You
1: it's know, an given- amazing quote. It really touched me, made me it actually started to make me cry because right. I thought about the impact of that and that what people's lives are like. Mm. And it was, it was such a tragedy that he was killed. Right. We talked Agreed. briefly earlier today. I didn't know Nipsey Russell's work, but the outpouring of grief from this man's death. Yeah, right. Was, I suspect that the, the impact of his death will be he wasn't. To my knowledge, he wasn't nationally known like Tupac was, Mm, but he was locally known and really revered. And it's such a tragedy to see these young guys, you know, I don't know what the reasons are. I don't want to say there was no reason because somebody Mm -hmm. clearly thought there was a reason. Mm -hmm. But what a shame. Mm -hmm. What a tragedy.
2: It is. And I think it's it's really sad with like— guys like nipsey Hussle and with tupac but they're they're part of like a bigger chain a bigger system i think i read um the LAP, lapd put out a tweet after nipsey hustle had passed away and said that nipsey Hussle was the 23rd young black man that was murdered so he even even nipsey hustle isn't exempt of the the depravity of the gang violence that exists in that community just because he has you know a couple million followers and right. because he has you know fam um, even him, he's he's still part of the the largest yeah, somebody's
1: system. Somebody's mad about something or there's some territory issue and, you know, but then that's how – but look yeah. at the outpouring of grief for him. I know, right? I it's think amazing.
2: I think the same way. We need that 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 outpouring of grief for Nipsey Hussle. I think we need that for the other twenty three as well, right? Oh, for sure. Because they all have families. They all have that's stories struck that, down, right? And sometimes we don't really get that. You know, those other people, those other twenty three, didn't have millions of followers, um, and you know, we may never know their name. But just you know, just the same, they shouldn't have been murdered. Either. I
0: also feel sad for the kid that shot him because mm, right. Yes, he did. And yes, he I should agree. be in jail. But the circumstances mm. that led to his life that right. felt that the only way to resolve an issue wow. was that you're going to take a gun and kill somebody.
2: I agree with you. When you get to the point where you're killing people and you're in a bad spot mentally, physically, yeah. you're, you're really in a bad spot at that point, And you you really need some healing in multiple ways. You need some healing, some redemption, some some something.
1: Unbelievable. OK, so I want let's go back to you. So. I was very touched by the protectiveness that you demonstrated towards your little brother Mm -hmm. and that you said, this is not happening. You were not not getting an education. Mm -hmm. Can we talk a little bit about the relationship with your siblings, both your sister and your brother?
2: Sure, absolutely. Um, I love my siblings, my sister and my brother. (laughs) I'm proud to be a a younger brother and an older brother. And um, I think I was put in a very difficult position as a child, right? It's like uh, not only am I a child and I'm a, a son, but I'm a brother to my younger brother. And also I had to fill in in some ways the way that like a, an uncle or, you know, a, a father, a stepfather, something like that will fill in, you know, trying to lead by example and to guide, you know, in life actions and things I didn't really even know too much about in many in many instances. So I think I was in a really tough position without a, a, a clear manual or a guide on how to do that. You were and I 10 re- years old. Right. I just did the best. I did the best I can. That was that was the. You know, that was my idea of doing the best I can. Like I need to set an example and live my life with impeccable character, try to take advantage of many opportunities as possible. And hopefully I can instill that into my brother, too. But even that is, you know, it's incredibly difficult. I think anyone that's, you know, raised children, they know even as successful as you may be, it's difficult to impart those values on someone, you know, that you're raising that is younger than you, even if they're around you the whole time. So you can only imagine the difficulty, you know, I was experiencing in doing that. Did
1: you scrap it up with him were you too close and he respected your help and wanted your help? Or did he Uh say, I don't want to do this. My brother,
2: he's he's a pretty stubborn guy, I would say, (laughs) at at least as, as a kid. He's like somebody that has to touch the fire first and then get burnt and then listen to you like, hey, man, I, t- I said it was hot, you know. Uh, now you got to listen to me.
1: But he did listen to you.
2: Eventually, right. Yeah. And, and luckily, you know, we're all in a, in better positions, you know, for that reason. Right. But yeah. You were all
1: while your mom was going to school at night. Right. And she so, worked a full-time job during the daytime, mm-hmm. going to school at night. Mm-hmm. Were you sort of the um, proxy man in the house because your dad was nowhere to be found?
2: Wow, that's deep. So – for um, my father, he was somewhere to be found. Like we knew where to find him. We were separated from uh from him for a reason, you know, for the threat of violence. Right. But the whole the man of the house thing, I think it's like super difficult and rough. And I hate sometimes that um, at least in my community, that we put that label on young boys. It's unreasonable to to rob a child of their childhood and designate them man you know at the age of 9 we're 10 at 11 nine 12. Years I think that's horrible I think it's a terrible way to think about masculinity and I think it's incredibly toxic you know but I, I would say a lot of that those mindsets you know existed in my household and sometimes they would you know refer to me as such but I never really embraced that title I embraced it as like this is our our collective uplift as a family and we're each doing our part but a lot of times it did fall on like very you know gendered lines like that like oh you're the man of the house so you can't do this you can't do that and you have to eat last and Make sure, you know, all the girls in the house eat first. But I didn't like that stuff and I don't agree with
0: it. You were nine. Your mom was in the hospital. She had surgery, came Mm -hmm. home and had a lot of Mm -hmm. things, terrible things happen. And you're at nine saying you had to take on the responsibility for the family. And we're really key in getting your mom back on her feet, Mm -hmm. so to speak, Mm -hmm. um, emotionally after all of that. How do you handle that at nine years old? Like you are a kid at nine.
2: I do not know. My entire memory of a lot of those things are incredibly cloudy. I think in my brain, I, I blocked a lot of it out. Mm. Because, like, imagine, you know, taking your mom or your dad and, and taking them to wash themselves. And, like, a lot of these things are just, like, faint memories in my mind to where I, I, I think I put them somewhere way back well, just that's so what I can happens. continue to, yeah. you know, to, to live. Your but mind
1: I, is very protective, you know. That's right. what happens to me. It's true. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you probably sure. know this, uh, at least as well as I do, is that your the your brain functions in such a way that it protects the memory so that the bad memories are not always the ones that are in front. They're there somewhere, and you could really pull them out if you wanted to, Mm -hmm. but you don't really want to because the pain is too great.
2: Right. Agreed. The
1: pain of that is overwhelming, particularly for somebody your age. You also said something else which I was quite taken with. I love this expression about how Mrs. Blanchard (laughs) taught you boundaries. Right. Mm -hmm. Which was I just thought that I mean
2: wow. Yeah, she was the old lady that lives on my street and um when you ride your, we rode our bicycles. I come from neighborhood, we always playing outside. And when you rode your bicycle across her lawn, she would come out with that broom and yell at you. <laughs> and in my in my head, that's why I learned boundaries. Like, in life, there's boundaries. We had a, a next-door neighbor. Um, he was always organizing, like, his front lawn. And I just saw him just take care of his lawn and his grass and his things. That's why I learned organizational skills, right, just from watching that man. We had a mailman, and he showed up at, like, 315 Every single day, Monday through Saturday, that's why I learned punctuality, right? And then we had, you know, coaches that I used to watch in my neighbor, uh, you know, in my community, and they taught me what it was to be a man of my community. So I was able to, like, glean little things, little life lessons, you know, about, uh, you know, manhood, so to speak, about being an adult, about being a, a responsible individual, just from, you know, my life experiences. I'd like to treat, um, you know, life as my teacher in the voids of the things I'm not learning at home or in school. You know, I wanted to be a student of life. And, and really learn, you know, what there is out out there for me to learn. Very
0: intuitive. Yeah. Was, <laughs> for you to even exactly have the awareness thing. to pick up on all of those lessons and look at them at lessons at that age is right. pretty incredible.
2: Yes. I and I, I hate to give myself any credit, like, but yeah, I don't I don't know where that comes from. I I don't know. Maybe they could run a brain scan on me on, on why I think like that, but that I don't know. I have no idea where that comes from.
1: Did you have um when you were growing up, did you have Times daily, where you sat with your family, where you sat with your mom, your sister, and your brother, the four of you as a group, and talked and had a meal, and you know just that hey, was your day to day kind of conversations,
2: yeah, ah, that makes sense, so my mom, who's incredibly like critical thinker, she would sit us down, I will give you an example. What we used to do were our bonding time when everybody's done with, with, with what they're doing. A lot of times, you know, throughout our childhood, until we got, like, really, really busy, we would watch movies. So, for example, we would sit down and watch a historical black movie. My mom would say, who's Angela Davis? Who's Huey P. Newton? Or we would sit down and watch Shawshank Redemption. And she would pause the pause the movie. And the, the play pause button on the remote was worn out. And she would pause. <laughs> she would say, you see uh, you see this man? He's collecting these rocks like he's at the beach. He's physically in prison. But is he in prison mentally? Where is he mentally? And she would, like, ask us little questions like that. And for me, you know, I really embraced it. You know, sometimes my brother and sister, they'd be a little bored. Like, with Mom, it before, just yeah, keep it going. Or, all right, just keep it going. But for me, I was like, whoa, yeah, like, that's deep. That's real. So, and I and used she, to really learn from those things.
1: So she was constantly, in her way, reinforcing education right? My and mom being talked analytical.
2: To us, mm-hmm, she talked to us like adults. Like from the, like a lot of uh, parents, you know, they show their kids, they almost like want them to be like naive slash um, dumb, you know, essentially. And my mom, that wasn't an acceptable standard for her because she had grown up in a time where, you know, she really thought babies came from storks. Until the age of like 16, you know, because parents around (laughs) her don't want to tell you the truth. She said, I don't want you guys to be like that. I want you to be ignorant. So she used to talk to us like adults. Like we were, uh, she allowed us to like disagree with her. She'd allowed us, she would allow us to lay out an argument and debate with her, which is rare. I think most parents don't do that at all. They say, they give you answers like, "Uh, it is this way because I said so. And then when the kid says, why, don't worry, why? It's because I said so. My mom never did that. If we said why, she actually had to substantiate why.
0: Wow. There's another quote, just because education is such a theme through you, that you say when you got to Compton in school, and you were just talking about how that school system, how kids just don't have any of the privileges or access to everything they need for education. And you said you came in, I could read. Mm -hmm. I understood how to discipline myself and how to tackle homework. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Key skills that you had that helped you mm-hmm. fight against a system that wasn't helping in any way.
2: Precisely, yeah. because, you know, those things aren't going to be taught if you have the defunding of, um, of early childhood education and you have to get on a wait list to get into preschool and things like that in that area, clearly a lot of kids are not gonna have those opportunities. Then when you have parents, um, like most parents in that area uh, that work two jobs, right? Or, you know, the male, uh, you know, let's say it's a, a father, a, sen- a nuclear family, um, the father's a truck driver and the mother is working two jobs, you know, low paying jobs without benefits. Um, The kid clearly is not gonna get that early childhood education at the Montessori school or, you know, whatever the case is, or, you know, Kumon Mathematics Center. So luckily I was able to benefit from those things, you know, out in Moreno Valley. So I came in prepared. But I understand how a lot of other, you know, students weren't. And they were um, they were penalized for that. You're literally penalized at six years old for what you do and don't know. And then they run a test on you to say whom amongst you are the most capable and the most, um, you know, the most deserving of better educational opportunities. And I think that's a, that's a great Is that injet- how
0: kids get into the magnet system? Precisely. Oh, so they have to test well. So if they uh-huh. haven't had any advantages uh-huh. – Then they're going to test poorly. And that really doesn't say anything about how bright they are. It says nothing
2: about their intelligence, right? So I, I see that as a great injustice, right? So then those 25 kids, which I'm included in, get the opportunity. They get the better school. They get to go to the better middle middle school. Like it sent us on a different path. The kids that didn't go into uh, get into those programs, they went to the other middle school that was um, either in Carson or was in Compton. And then they went to the other high school that was either in Carson or that was in Compton, where I went to the middle school in Rancho Palace Verdes. And then I went to the private school. Right. Clearly, because of this test as an eight year old. There's wow. something wrong with that. Something about that tells me, you know, intuitively, hmm, there might be something, you know, insidious going on here. Why is there so few opportunities?
1: And the amount of money that we spend in California on education and the amount of tax bills that go on, it's, it's so shameful.
2: Oh, yeah. That is,
1: it's shameful.
2: But the amount of our budget that goes to incarceration is shameful as well yeah you know since in many in many states we spend more on incarcerating somebody which they I think they've calculated to about fifty thousand a year versus educating somebody which can be you know less than a couple thousand a year. Something about that is mm-hmm. wrong. I'd rather switch it up you know give less money to the private prisons, give more to those school teachers. Give those tax breaks to those teachers, to those special education teachers. They don't pay taxes in my economy. If I'm president, the special education (laughs) teachers and and educators and people like this, they pay no taxes under me.
0: Would you say then from your experience, early education is key? Like once you hit a certain age, are you always going to be behind? Like will you be behind in a system from grade three? Yes. So unless you get – you start them off. Yes. You're really at a disadvantage. Yes.
2: Yes. I, any Anyone that comes from anywhere above middle class knows this very well, because why? We put our kids in early childhood education things that jumpstart them, give them a head start. And then when they go to school, they're not even above the kids that they go to school with. They're just right in a level with them because all those other kids got those early jumps, too. So you'll clearly be way behind and you'll continue to be uh, struggle and then people will call you dumb. People call you lazy. People say that you don't want it as bad, when really it's something much different that's mm. going on.
1: It can be for sure. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of of examples of that. That people, if you don't learn to read and do basic arithmetic, Mm -hmm. when you're that, when your brain is just opening up from being Mm -hmm. a little one, you Mm -hmm. know, and all of a sudden your brain opens up. When you have a little baby, Mm -hmm. I mean, you can talk to, you can read to your little baby now and talk to your little baby and your little baby may not be able to read. How old is your daughter?
2: Uh, She'll turn one on the 23rd of July. uh,
1: Do you read to her? Oh, no kidding. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Look at that. Do you read to her already? Oh, of course. All the time, right? I
2: read to my wife's stomach, you know, read, read to her from the day she was. She was born, and we have a bilingual household, so she's benefiting from hearing two different, you know, accents and two different languages on a daily basis. You know, that's great for her brain.
1: It's unbelievable. There's so much evidence of um, at that age, you can absorb so many things. Oh, yes. And to I, it's one of the things I talk about this regularly is that I have four sons, mm-hmm. and I had a full-time Spanish housekeeper. Wow. And I had my my full-time Spanish housekeeper speak to my children in English. What? And if I had to do that – because I didn't speak Spanish and I wanted to know what was going on and she spoke English. I see, I see. And it was a terrible mistake. Okay, (laughs) I'm telling you – I mean I I had two mistakes that I made with my children that I can't repair. That was Mm -hmm. one of them. And um, the – they would be bilingual. They'd be multilingual. Oh, yeah. Of course. And I didn't do that. Easily. Because I was stupid and mm-hmm. I really should have done that differently. I wouldn't I had say a, you were stupid. You were yeah. misinformed. <laughs> no, I was misinformed. <laughs> and my husband, everybody's – now now as adults, they have conversational Spanish, but they'd be fluent in Spanish. Oh, of course. The other thing I did wrong, which is interesting that you just said this, is that I was a junkie reader. From the time I was two, two and a half years old, I was wow. reading books that were at my skill level, yeah. and as by the time I was five, I was reading chapter books, wow. and I loved to read, mm-hmm. and I did not read excessively to my children. I read to them, you know, I would read to them at night when they went to bed, mm. but I should have pounded them with reading. Yeah. And I really thought then, and you, and I don't know if this helps you at all with your daughter because you already did this yourself, mm. you have to make them want to read. Absolutely. And you got to make them want to read from the time they are old enough to focus their little eyes. Mm-hmm. And the way you make them read is to read to them. So and then they learn and then they want to read themselves and not reading. I was a junkie reader, so I just figured they'd be the same, but they weren't. I had to teach them that ah, as they I got see. older.
2: Yeah, that is like a learned trait because yeah. my mom, I, I didn't say this. I didn't, I didn't clarify, but I learned how to read so early um, because on the way to law school, it's was like an hour and some change drive out to like Orange County, I think was where the law school was from where we lived. And um, my mom needed to study. You know, so she would hand me her textbook, the first book I read was called Wills, Trusts, and Estates <laughs> and the, second, the second book I ever read it was called Torts or something like that yeah. i yeah. sure right? you would know what it what is yeah. better than I would right? you were
1: reading that to your mother while mm-hmm. she was driving
2: right. exactly so that's what that's what engaged me in the idea of like reading and just what you're saying <laughs> is, it's the so true story. and your brain right yeah. We, yeah exactly it makes you so much you know yeah. more more, you know, smarter in yeah. that way you know so much more developed those neural pathways and like as you say with my daughter I read to her so much to where right when she wakes up I go sit on the floor, she will walk over to me and sit on my lap and grab a book. I love she's that. She's less than Beautiful. one year old. So, uh, teaching the love of reading is incredibly I important. I couldn't
1: agree with you more. The other thing I see today is that a lot of kids are learning to read on computers. I think
2: that's a bad and idea. I,
1: terrible idea. Yeah, mm-hmm. It needs to be a tactile experience, of it needs to be sitting down with a book. Mm-hmm. And uh, I I love absolutely love 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 reading like that but mm-hmm. it, it's a, it's a learned experience but to start at that age and to teach them the love of reading will teach them the love of education. That's right. And your daughter's going to be bilingual.
2: Yes. Oh, she'll, she'll be uh, quadrilingual. She'll speak five languages. Wow. More. My, my wife, she speaks four languages. She does? mm mm-hmm. yeah, She's super smart. What's she's, her
1: primary language?
2: Uh, Well, let me think. I guess English now since she's mm-hmm. been here so long. But, you know, she was uh, her first language was Spanish. Her second language was Guarani. It's an indigenous language, her indigenous people. She comes from a country called Paraguay or Paraguay, as yep. you say in English. And then her third language uh, was Portuguese and then English coming here. And wow. now she's teaching herself Italian. So she's a polyglot, super smart lady. She's a smart Went out of us too.
0: Yeah. So let's, yeah, uh, we have so, of you so much to talk to you about. <laughs> let's talk about sports and, and school. Okay. And that was part of what got you scholarships right, and sort right, of right. got you out. But sure. you know, we were talking earlier just about how hard it is for schools, you know, neighborhoods like yours, to even be able to get into sports. Right. And Snoop created this league. Uh-huh. And just tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So.
2: Um, As as I've said before, you know, in areas where you don't have uh, Montessori schools or or Kumon math centers, um, under-resourced, underfunded areas, um, sports are a saving grace for a lot of young people, you know, Uh, particularly young black boys, you know, when you don't have funding of art programs and music programs. I didn't know anyone that played a musical instrument growing up. I can't think of one person, you know, that I ever met. It just wasn't a thing. There's no funding. So sports, um, for me at least, you know, was one of those things that, you know, I can get attached to and I could, you know, grow from, I could learn from and, you know, have a lot of fun with. So we got into the Snoop Dogg Youth Football League um, pretty early on, right when the league started. And, you know, it was just something for me to will myself towards every day, something to look forward to, something to help me get down the street, you know, because when I'm walking with my football and the gang members ask me if I want to, you know, participate in the gang, I can just say, no, I'm good. I want to play football. You know things like that, so you know sports were were incredible for me. It was it was such a blessing. I had opportunity to play. And if
0: Snoop didn't create that league, you were saying at that time you couldn't afford to play on it. So yeah, he other, brought something beautiful to the neighborhood.
2: Sure the other local league was in was in Carson or in in the Orange County league. I think it was Agachaf. And um, you know, it was four hundred dollars to be able to participate for us. That was, you know, you a we, crazy we, amount of money. Yeah, yeah a crazy would, amount. We would we would know that four hundred dollars was missing from the family income. Yeah. yeah. If I was playing football out yeah. there, so other than that, I, I would have just been, you know, out in out in the street, you know, playing street football, you know, with with my friends. But guess what? You just play so much street football with your friends, then you turn 13, 14, you start liking girls, you start wanting to be impressive, you start winning shoes, then you can start getting into negative lifestyles and negative habits very early on. So the same risk factors that I escaped, I I definitely could have been a part of them had I not had a couple of different things that, you know, intervened.
1: The fact that Snoop did that Mm -hmm. and was in the community, was that his community that he grew up in?
2: Great question. So Snoop Dogg is from Long Beach originally. So he's not from Compton. He's not from Watts. He's not from Carson. He's not from, you know, South L.A. So he, he wanted to do something that was above and beyond just his own community. He expanded it to all of the South L.A., inner city, predominantly black and some Hispanic region. So he did something that was, you know, bigger than even just his own community. It, would, it encompassed his own you know uh, neighborhood, but others as well.
1: It's remarkable how much he gives back to the community. Yes, it's unbelievable. I was telling you before that I had the pleasure of seeing him the other night, um, where he showed up for an event I was involved with with basketball, and it was like the Messiah walked into the room. I'm telling you, everybody was running over to him. Thank you, hey, you know, and they're all high fiving and running up and down the field. And came in with his baggy pants and his fat. He's but uh, the most amazing guy, and the warmth that he exudes. Mm. It was amazing. I mean, just he had everybody was around him. Wow, I yeah.
2: think that's incredibly special. And I think there's a lot of people like like Coach Snoop that exists. You know, Coach Why Dude, Coach uh Tony. You know, I think I think yep. a lot of these you know, it's uh I think the stereotype, I guess, that they that they propagate is that men like this are rare and far, few and far between. Uh, but I know many of these of, of such men, such black men in particular, right. that are there for their family and there for their community each and every day. So Snoop Dogg is just a part of a larger system of black men that are doing their part.
0: So how did football in that league get you into scholarships and schools? Because we like just move us forward a little bit. Sure, on, sure. Yeah.
2: So I ended up um, going to a private school, a Jesuit school, Catholic school, in um in Watts, you know, right? Diamond in the rough in the city, and you know, I kept playing sports. You know, uh, just working extremely hard. It's just something that was so fun. You could dedicate yourself, just like anybody plays a musical instrument. You know, you just fall in love with it. You could, you don't. It's not even a job to you. So I just kept playing sports, and um, you know, luckily I was, you know, I'm blessed to have, you know, gotten recruited to universities and things like that. And then I went out to um to Mary's College was the first university that I went to, and it was just a, a great experience. They couldn't offer like a full ride scholarship, but they put together like a financial aid package that amounted to what, you know, a scholarship would be, essentially. And then I eventually transferred to um to Texas Christian University in uh, in Fort Worth, Texas. And I was there actually on an academic scholarship.
0: A full, a full I was going to say, because just to be clear for mm-hmm. everybody listening, I mean, you were there on academics and on sports. Right, so yes. it wasn't just like, oh, I'm a great football oh, player. Yeah, I got a free ride <laughs> right. here and I don't have to. You excelled in school. A student athlete. Yeah, a student athlete. Yes, Congratulations. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate
2: yeah. that. My idea was that, you know, the same um, work ethic that I'm exhibiting out there on that field and training, I'm going to train my mind in that same way. So I feel like it makes you a very well-rounded person. And I applaud all student-athletes. We have like this uh, this stigma of like the dumb jock, right? But it's not accurate, right? By the numbers, the average, like for example, in my university, that the student GPA, average GPA was a 2.4. The student-athlete GPA was a 2.75. Wow. So the dumb jocks are actually smarter than the regular party boys and girls, right? A lot of
0: people There's, don't know that. Uh, yeah, there is still a stigma about uh-huh. that. I would yeah, think that Yeah, you also opposite. had
1: coaches that kept you guys straight in line because coaches had no tolerance for uh, showing up late, being drunk, being hungover, bad, mm-hmm. so they kept your behavior across every university mm-hmm. I've ever met anybody from. If you mm-hmm. were playing sports, you were kept in a very strict mm-hmm. environment.
2: And I'd like to add to that, not only the coaches are disciplining them. No, nah, these people are self disciplined themselves. Right. The most that that's why a job uh, you know people that hire for jobs, they love when they see a student athlete is applying to their because they know the person's gonna show up on time. They're gonna know not to come in hungover. They're gonna know not to call in on um, you know, what is it? Call in on Monday and say, Oh, I got sick over the week. We know you didn't get sick over the weekend. <laughs> right. (laughs) (laughs) So they know not to do these things. This draw internal drive. They're incredibly driven, Mm -hmm. right? So the dumb jock stereotype is something that, you know, it's persistent, but it's inaccurate. How'd you
0: get to Princeton? So you were...
2: Yeah. So I ended up um, doing so. I wanted to take advantage of all the opportunities, you know, when I got to college compared to my home life. You know, this was like, a uh, you know, an abundance of, of wealth and resources. I remember even being impressed um, that we had hot water at my dormitory or that, you know, I go in and take, you know, take a shower, you know, anytime I wanted or that I had my own bed to myself. So I got on campus. I put on a certain and tie and I went to each office on campus and I introduced myself. I, I just thought that was a thing to do. I came in like, hey, my name is Kylan Moore. I'm from the inner city. Do you have any any opportunities for me to better myself? And most people are like, ah, and they <laughs> What's start laughing. Doing here? <laughs> they start doing like the slow roll into a laugh. But every now and again, somebody would pull out an application and hand it to me to apply. So that's what got me the opportunity to study um, at the University of Bristol in England for the Fulbright Summer Institute. And that's what it eventually led to a different scholarships and me studying for uh, a public policy and international affairs fellowship Incredible. at Princeton University. So that's kind of how those material uh, those opportunities materialize. When you give an opportunity to someone from Compton, Harlem, Detroit, Watts, they take advantage of it. That's why you hear these people. That's why you hear of um, Tupac Shakur. That's why you hear of Kendrick Lamar. That's why you hear of Richard Sherman. And you hear of all these different people. Because when you give an opportunity to someone like them, they don't take it for granted. You know, I I, I walk in the tradition of fellow, uh, you know, Comptonites and and people that are from South LA that, you know, got those elite opportunities that are so few and far between.
1: But you were fiercely determined to not repeat the life that your father, that your father led. You're fiercely determined to Pull yourself out of that and to learn through education to have a better life. That drive comes from deep inside.
2: I I agree. And from the water in my city. Because I think it's in the water too. Because there's a lot of people. <laughs> like I can think about, I can name, I can name off a list rapidly of 20 other people that is just like me. That perhaps don't have the notoriety or the Rhodes scholarship, but really went out there and got it once they got an opportunity. I met a dude that's a MMA, a professional MMA fighter from Compton. I met a guy that's in law school right now from Compton, from Watts, from all these different places. Is once they get that opportunity, they don't, they don't waste it. They know, they know how rare it is. You know, they're not gonna you know, drink it off. They're not going to smoke it off. They're going to really take, you know, be be appreciative of it. If you ever travel to like a foreign country or something like that, a third world country in particular, you'll meet people that are so humble or so thankful for the opportunity to study. That's kind of how it is where I come from too. It's just so – the opportunities are so scarce.
0: How was the experience in those Ivy League schools? And then we'll get into you becoming a Rhodes Scholar, which is incredible. Okay, But, you know, to be at the Ivy – coming from that where you came from, mm-hmm. now you're in Princeton and you're right, with all right. – Probably a lot of wealthy well privileged kids
2: when you were there you? uh no I wasn't working while I was there it was a full paid uh everything fellowship so you had food paid for and yeah, dorm everything, and everything all those yeah. things right um I think for me it was an interesting transition I think like you know you get around you get around those circles people have more like um I guess politically liberal ideations and stuff but they really had like a very warped sense of what goes on like in the hood or you know or or in communities that are not from where they're from you know they've somehow I don't know. It was just it was just strange. Like people telling me that when I say something, calling it like a microaggression, or telling you know, it was just like all these weird things that are going on to where it was like a tough transition um you know with people that are competing you know with amongst themselves to say you know i've had the hardest time i've had the hardest time and you as a person that probably did have the hardest time you're just being humble and saying you know where can we meet you know where can we find some common ground so it was very strange for me to be you know in those places especially when you know you have people that have all the access and the privilege in the world but still seem like so unhappy or so uh you know, ungrateful, I don't it's unbelievable, know. It stra- isn't it? It was strange for me, it's it just a strange transition. I still find it a bit strange, um, to really connect to really understand, you know, because I don't come from that world, I come from much more humble beginnings, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, did you feel that your part of your mission, really, to be here is to you know to spread all of your <laughs> greatness in the world and in doing all this? Did you feel that you were helping people change? Because, like you said, very liberal, I did. That you were there helping people change their opinions because they knew you and they were hearing your experience, or were you sharing that when you were in school?
2: Wow, thank you. Um I think it's absolutely necessary to have people like me in the room, you know? You shouldn't just have like um, you know, racial diversity or, or gender diversity. You need some wealth diversity as well. And in those Ivy League places or, you know, Oxford, you have very little wealth diversity. Very little. You will see all colors of the rainbow but not all uh, not all tax breakers. not all financial range. sectors yeah oh for sure not for sure not no. at all right so i think it it was it was um i think it was great you know just to be there to share my experiences to say hmm actually i see that a little bit differently and for me you know i'm, I'm very i'm a very open minded person you know i'm not going to shout somebody down or, or try to you know belittle them or embarrass them if they have a different perspective than me and people afforded me that same respect generally as well so i i am, I am thankful for that but i think it was good i think you need more people of all types of backgrounds there's something to glean and learn from people of any background. This I'm certain of, right? So Well
0: everyone's experiences are different. So mm-hmm. if everyone comes together, you're a mirror for other people exactly. to reflect in.
2: Exactly. I'm your window into that into mm-hmm. that world. What no are your what brother and sister doing now? My younger brother, he's in graduate school. Well, let me start with my sister, because she's older. My sister, she's a nurse. And then uh, my younger brother, he's in graduate school now. He's, he just finished undergraduate at University of Texas at Austin. He was a student athlete the whole time, great student. And now he's in graduate school, in the Graduate School of Education at University of Texas at Austin. So he wants to be a professor of education. So he'll be, he'll be doing his doctorate.
1: So your brother and you live in the same town. We do. <laughs> we and do. where does your sister live?
2: My sister, she lives in uh, Carson, California.
1: So your sister and your mom live here. Uh, yes, in and California. Your, and uh-huh. your brother and you live in the same town, uh-huh. which is an unbelievable town. Right. <laughs> unbelievable town. Yeah. Now, let's talk about your book of wisdom.
2: Okay, sure. Yeah. I want so to I...
1: know the history, you know, what were you were thinking and, you know, catch us up. Are there more than do you keep adding to your book of wisdom? Oh, my
2: goodness. I'm on like the 10th volume at this no point. No kidding. Yeah. I love so, this. Yeah. So my idea was that, you know, like I said, um, for whatever reason, I'm not sure what it is. You know, I've always been like a very like curious person. I want to learn. I want to know. I want to know your story. I want to just ask you questions and listen to you talk and sit like a fly on the wall while you explain things. And I always had this mindset. Basically, I started writing this book when I was like a junior or a senior in high school And, um, you know, it just started off a little, a little notebook. I would just write down little quotes that I would hear, you know, and I would, if I could hear something or or learn something from the homeless man down the street, or if I could learn something from, you know, the white guy with tattoos on his face that just got out of prison, or if I could learn to somebody, uh, to, from, from a woman that was in an abused and battered women's shelter or from a financial analyst, whoever it is, I wanted to learn, you know, I was so hungry for knowledge and, um. You know, just learning and writing down these things, I've learned so much. It's made me so, uh, so worldly. You know, so open minded to different perspectives, and you know, I was able to, you know, make better decisions as a result of it. And I've, I've just kept it going. I think a lot of that, uh, a lot of those book of wisdom things are, you know, things I've learned in my own reflections up to this point, and though a lot of them are the foundation for, you know, what you'll find in this book.
0: What are you gonna do with them? All those volumes. I know you say in the book it's a legacy to your wow. to your daughter it's and your children. children right. But when you when I read that, I was like, I want to read your books of yeah, wisdom. Wow, Are you yeah. going to share them?
2: You know, it's funny. I might I might share them. I might publish them on my way out. You know, when, it, <laughs> when I get a little bit more up in age, and I'm the, I know I got about 15, 20 years left. I might I might drop them
1: <laughs> when you do. Are these little snippets, full pages, full paragraphs, full it de- it you know, chapters? It,
2: it depends what it is. Like some things could be like a full chapter. It could be a full quote. It can be a full reflection, a full realization. I could uh, like, for example, I went to um on a, on a trip with the uh, Tannenbaum Foundation to Israel. I had so much that I learned, so much culture that I experienced, and so many different things, like different ways of looking at things. I was talking to this guy from a, uh, from a what do you call it, a, a kibbutz mm-hmm. or yeah. something like that, right? This dude, this guy taught me so much, like, of Just his little, like, quirky things. I was like, whoa, this is wisdom. Like, this is, like, an entire, like, manuscript from this man. So, so many different things from people from all walks of life, you know, that I've encountered, from things I've learned, things that I've come to in my, you know, in my own brain, my own realizations and stuff. It would probably be pretty interesting for somebody to read. Like, it would probably be pretty trippy. So What an
0: incredible trait you have to be so open and open-hearted to listening to other people's mm-hmm. opinions and that thirst for constant. Wow. Learning, but learning with wisdom. Thank you. I yeah, appreciate you. Really- you have
1: a nice quality that you have no predecision. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, like you're like open. You haven't decided something before you hear the facts. I want to speak to that. Yes. I heard a quote, right? <laughs> yeah. And this is
2: what the quote said. It says, "If you, if you, it said, if you want to know the truth, hold no opinions." And that's something that I live by. It's, you, it's, a, yeah. If you it's, want to know the truth, hold no opinions.
1: I try I'll, to live my life like that. Although I must say that. Uh, as I've become older, I quickly decide something not not everything. I'd like to be open to you know what comes towards me, but I have found recently I was thinking of having a conversation with myself about this not to have to be so quick to have an opinion. Mm. One thing I think that that I've noticed in my conversation with you and what I noticed in your book is that you appear to be a non judgmental person
2: wow, maybe because. I feel like I can empathize with you. Like even though myself and and yourself and yourself have vastly different backgrounds, like, I don't know, like I feel you. Like I feel like you in a way.
0: And you don't hold any, you don't appear to hold any uh, grudges against your upbringing, the situation, the neighborhood you came from, any judgments about them having their issues and what they were dealing with.
2: Yeah, I don't know. I don't I don't come from that perspective. Right. Like I see no, like, you're
1: like open and, you know, not not angry or, nah. you know, I mean, you had a tough upbringing. Yeah, I don't you know? I don't
2: I don't think it's helpful for me to 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 live my life, you know, in that way to to hold bitterness. How against,
1: smart that is to know that at your mm-hmm, age. Right. It, you
2: was, it would only slow me down. Like, because it, it will close me off if I'm bitter at a particular race and I indict an entire race or an entire gender or an entire uh, political ideology and just rule out all, all these people as just collectively bad. Like, that will only slow me down, like, because I can learn something from somebody in middle America, in the middle of the Appalachian Mountains, just like I could learn somebody from learn from somebody at Princeton, just like I could learn from somebody, you know, that speaks another language and I learn from, the, from them through a translator. Right. I, f- I feel like it was so. Still... learning
0: and knowledge for you is a key part of your makeup and who you are. And I
2: think, even more so than that, one of my key uh, constitutions is humility, right? Yeah. And, like, for mm-hmm. humility, is like, how can I make myself less and, and make them more, you know? And, yeah, and you have, myself. you're, you're yeah.
1: fairly <laughs> egoless and you do have a lot of humility. It's true. It's, it's a very, it's lovely quality.
2: Lovely. I appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> I want
1: to talk about, um, so, your mom is your mom remarried?
2: My mom is not remarried
1: does she date?
2: uh that's a good question uh well, maybe maybe date. I'm
1: opening up <laughs> no no no, that's a good question no. I think
2: she did date she's not dating anybody no. now <laughs> she yeah. dated she dated for sure.
1: So and is either your your brother's younger than you? Your sister's older. Is she married?
2: No, my sister's not married. I'm the only one that's married. You're the only one that's uh-huh. married. Yeah.
1: So you're the only one. You know, I'm Jewish. So you know, the first the first I have four sons. So the first son that gives me a grandchild becomes my favorite. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, so my oldest son gave me my first grandchild. So I wow. tell him, of course, he's my favorite. But it's wow. not entirely true. But wow. I always told my four sons, whoever gives me the first
0: grandson is going to be my favorite. Wow. So well, but I'm glad
2: to, I'm glad to be a favorite. Hopefully, <laughs> hopefully it's all egalitarian. I don't want to just be the one favorite.
0: So tell us about becoming a Rhodes Scholar and what okay. does yeah, that mean and talk, and, the, yeah. talk about that. Sure, absolutely.
1: First of all, I want this is what I want to know and then if you okay. could answer. Mm-hmm. How did you hear about it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, what was your experience in becoming a Rhodes Scholar? Now that you've become a Rhodes Scholar, what doors does that open for you? So those are the questions we'd like to know. Sure,
2: I'll answer them in sequential order. So how did I hear about it? Um, there was another Rhodes Scholar um named myron Rowe. he was like a football player and now he's a neuroscientist doing his residency at uh harvard university incredibly intelligent guy african-american individual right so i looked at him i think i had a teacher that handed me an article about him like when i was in high school and she was like look man you could do this one day and i remember looking at it i was like rose scholar yeah i like the sound of that i yeah. didn't know much about it right? <laughs> it's very prestigious right. but um so that's kind of like how I first heard about it. And then it, you know, came back to the forefront after I'm doing all these prestigious applications. You know, after, uh, like I said, I walked, uh, you know, uh, you know, department to department, you know, on campus. I heard of it again from there. And then, you know, it came my senior year. You know, my mom sent me a text message to remind me to apply to it because I had, I had forgotten about it, actually. And I wanted to make sure I applied, you know, before football season. So that's kind of how it happened. So. In the uh, mechanically, how you become a Rhodes Scholar. So, I think for a lot of universities, um, it's like an intra-university competition for who actually gets the bid or the nomination from their school. So, I'm certain it's like hectic at these Ivy League schools. Like it's extremely competitive and cutthroat um, to a detriment, to a fault. But um, how many are there? a year in the united states uh they choose 32 american Rhodes scholars and then they choose uh i think like 96 total and they're usually from like british um like you mm-hmm. know imperialist places cecil rhodes himself just a just a quick background cecil yeah. rhodes he was a british imperialist if you ask if you meet people from south africa um they will compare him to uh, a character that's similar to hitler or to like king leopold for all mm. the genocide that he uh you know committed in that area he's a terrible guy by the way and um for cecil rhodes it it was in his will and his trust that he wanted to have a scholarship to continue that imperial dominant mission. So he said, I'm going to make a university in my name, Rhodes University, and I'm going to make a scholarship. And it's only going to go to British protectorate uh, uh, territories, white males. So clearly you can see things have changed. Right. Since then, <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. I've changed. the uh, hey, so <laughs> I've, I've changed yeah. the definition of what a Rhodes scholar is like Cecil Rhodes. Um, his legacy of of racism and, and bigotry and genocide. You know, it's not a legacy that I bear because, you know, I I redefine what a Rhodes Scholar is, essentially. So then you apply to it, you know, letters of recommendation, like seven letters of rec, personal statements. You have to have good grades. I think at the time I had a, a 3.9, 3.4 a grade point average. So my grades were on point economics major, mathematics minor, sociology minor. Right. So it's very intellectual. So then you, uh, you apply, you end up applying, um, you send in all your stuff and, you know, by the grace of God, thankfully I was accepted, you know, as a finalist. So we went out to, um, to California, to the Los Angeles public library, actually. And then, um, I ended up, uh, you know, it's like a competition between you and the other 12, you go in and you interview for like 30 minutes straight, the most intense interview of my entire life. Like no interview I ever have will ever be as hard as that one. Guaranteed.
1: Who interviewed you?
2: Um, Karen Stevenson, she's the first Black female Rhodes Scholar. It was Doctor Something Cohen. He was like some type of biomedical tech guy. You had doctors. You had a, a woman that worked in Obama's cabinet. You know, so this was many people. Oh yeah, and you were sitting across
1: f- would never number of people, and they're interviewing you. Uh, and and there's
0: twelve of you know, that are now finalists.
2: Uh, yeah, I think it was like twelve to fifteen. That were, and
0: what kind of things were they asking you?
2: Yeah, so they were they were asking questions like very intellectual questions, like, you know, things to trip you up. I think the main thing they want to do is is assess your processing power, like your mental capacity to think in an extemporaneous manner, which is something like I like to pride myself in being able to do that, you know, at a high level because of the training that I got from my mom. So basically they would ask like something like, okay, given the econ- – you're an economics major and you think they're going one way. Given the economic structure of the NCAA – what do you think could be changed to help out the communities in which they, or something like something like, Mm -hmm. something very convoluted
1: and you're supposed to respond to this on the cuff
2: Uh yes, exactly, precisely so, you know, by the grace of God luckily I was able to do like very well in the interview, and just an interesting story before, so we had a reception the night before, and a lot of the other students, they were like quite pretentious like I remember I got there late, like a little bit late, and I had to change in the bathroom, and there were a lot of homeless people in the bathroom, homeless people don't bother me, right, and you know they, they're just like me they're humans like they all had homes at one point yeah, they're just I not, not right. having a good yeah. time right now right so you know i i think that poverty is not a lack of character poverty is a lack of money right so they're just there and there's this one guy that was going to interview as well and i saw him you know and i said hey what's up bro because i know we're about to go into an interview together this guy looked at me he was like turn his nose up and <gasps> i had never seen somebody really turn their nose up like you hear about the I was like, whoa, like, it's different. Okay. And in my head, I was like, yo, I got to beat that dude. Nothing so else. he
0: didn't know you were one of the finalists. No, nah, thought I was it? one of the homeless oh, people. Wow. So he looked down
2: on me. I was like, wow. I was like, I hope the judges see through any pretentious display. So it got even more pretentious when we got in there. Then we went around a circle, you know, did a little icebreaker. And they asked each of us, you know, what is your name? Where are you from? And, um, you know, what's a fun fact about yourself? First girl, my name is Sally such and such. I go to Princeton. And my fun fact is that I've been, um, you know, skiing in the Swiss Alps three times. I'm like, ooh, okay. Yeah, and then yeah. the next, well, that's right. impressive. Then, then the next person not. was like, uh, my name is whatever her name was. Uh, I, I go to UCLA, and my fun fact is that I've been skydiving in every country in South America. And then like everything was like that. And then I, I was like, oh man, this is not a fun fact. This is like a, who, whose parents got more money? I can't compete in that regard, right. you know? So I was like, it came around my time. And I said, um, my name is Kylan Moore. I'm from Compton, California. Uh, I grew around the borderline of Compton and Carson down the street. And um, my fun fact is that, you know, two years ago from this exact day, I was a janitor. It sucked the air out of the room. Wow. Because now it's like not what have you done or what opportunities were you afforded? What is your character? What is your essential nature? So long story short, you know, I I go into the interview, you know, luckily I was successful. So it affords you an opportunity to study at the University of Oxford. You can study for um. For two years for a master's, one years for a master, or for a D field, which is the equivalent of a, a PhD. Basically, you know, you study whatever discipline you want. You got people that come in that as, are, a uh, as a road scholar, as a road scholar. So right? all
1: expenses are paid, and you mm-hmm. can pick one of those one of those paths. Oh yeah,
2: whatever discipline you want. Some people, wow. some girls study the sociology of the internet or something like that.
0: What did you get your master's in? I,
2: I studied Latin American studies because I wanted to have a more holistic view. I want to go into the field of sociology. So undergraduate, I studied economics. I studied mathematics. I studied sociology for fellowships. I studied public policy, and I also studied the transatlantic slave trade. So I said, "There's one <laughs> one group that I'm missing. Let me get Latin America in because I think I want to have something that's all encompassing for the policy issues that I want to work on. You know, it, it it involves Latinos, it involves blacks, public policy, economics, math, sociology. So it was just a perfect storm for me.
0: I read in the book and just correct me if I was wrong, but mm-hmm. the Tupac quote, when you you actually brought that up in oh, the yeah. interview, right? On the phone. I did. I've got to think that that made you stand out from everyone else right. as to what your character was all about.
2: Yeah, I wanted to show them I was about something different. Like, I'm not even concerned if you judge me or if you think, you know, rap music is bad and evil or whatever it is. I want to be authentically me. I want you to know who you're getting. Like, you know, if you, if you do choose to choose me as a scholarship, I want to let you know that I'm more than, you know, just a GPA or, you know, an intelligent quick answer. Like, you know, I'm a, I'm a person And I have a lot to bring to the table. And um, for the Rhodes Scholarship, you know, it's a lot of prestigious individuals um, such as, uh, you know, Bill Clinton was a Rhodes Scholar, Cory Booker, um, Mayor Pete Buttigieg of South Bend, Mm. Indiana. He was a Rhodes Scholar. Uh, I think George Stephanopoulos, uh, Rachel Maddow. Most of NBC's, you know, lineup are Rhodes Scholars. I'm Um, so
1: impressed with um, her. Mano. Mano. I'm yeah. so impressed with Pete. I feel like he's in. I don't know that he should have been running for president right now. He's a little young, right? But I think he is in definitely in our future. Okay. <laughs> and I think that Cory Booker is also definitely in our future. Wow. Uh, he is. You know, they're both present today. But I mm-hmm. think that these these people are just so spectacular. Wow. It's interesting, you know, the whole field of politics. Not to, not to fall into the abyss of politics, but this um, class of Democratic candidates. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Some of them are extraordinary people.
2: Oh, man. You have to admit, regardless of what, what party you uh, you support, these people are smart. I don't think there's any two ways about that. No, incredibly I agree with you. Incredibly intelligent individuals. Yeah, I agree with no you. No debate around that for sure. Andrew Yang, incredibly smart. Oh, All my
1: God. People. So smart. Unfortunately, you- they're in a cesspool of, you know, everything right now. Everything's in a cesspool. <laughs> I want to stay with this Rhodes Scholar. So now you go there. Mm-hmm. You've chosen the path that you want to take. Uh-huh. And you take a one-year Um, walk or how long were you Uh, there? Two years. Two years. Uh But you could have stayed longer if you had wanted to.
2: Yeah, perhaps.
1: So now what? So this you completed this and Uh you are now a Rhodes Scholar. Right. (laughs) Does this help you? What do you do today? How, How do you live your life now?
2: Oh, good question. So in the fall, I'll be applying to PhD programs. As I said, I'm interested in becoming, you know, a full, you know, professor. A tenured faculty member at a university, you know, to really research and study the issues, the intractable issues that I discuss in my book. You know, I want to like really dive in, you know, deeply to, you know, what's causing this gang violence? What can we do to change? What experimentations with anti racist policy do we need to do? So that's the most immediate thing that I'm doing right now, you know, other than, uh, you know, talking about my book or things like that um, and, you know, different places that I'm going. I want to become a professor. So I'll be applying to PhD programs in the fall and then, you know, we'll see where that. That takes me uh, after that. Maybe, you know, I'll get tired of being a professor after 30 years and 10 more books and say, you know what, man, I might want to run for office. <laughs> right. Yeah. Why not? Who knows? Why not? Yeah. I mean, you
1: have every reason to. <laughs> you know, it's interesting because we talked about this upstairs. Um, we were talking about Malcolm Gladwell's book, mm-hmm. um, David and Goliath, Love and it. about the three strikes law. Mm-hmm. And after you – I want to ask you to tell the audience what you talked to to me about the Three Strikes Law because since the time I saw you three hours ago until now, uh, I went and I did a little bit more online reading Mm -hmm. on the topics that you said Mm because I was profoundly impacted Mm -hmm. when I read Malcolm's book about the history of the Three Strikes Law Mm -hmm. and what the original intent was. Mm -hmm. And what it has become, Mm. in my opinion, and you probably know more about this than I do, so that's why I'm asking you this question, it is not what it was intended to do. Mm. It has caught up and swept up a much broader swath of people Mm. as a result of the three strikes law than it was intended to. Mm. So I would love you to to share with our listeners what we talked about upstairs because that was – <laughs> sure. unbelievably yeah. interesting to me oh sure. you mind
2: absolutely i don't mind at all so i think i was talking about um you know a little bit about policy and i was like it was something pertaining to you know you'll look at the the hood and a lot of times we'll wonder you know why are more you know black people in prison you know than than white people if you know if the majority of people that are in prison are for victimless crimes as in you know it's not something that you call the police for it's like We're here. We're sweeping up people. We caught somebody that was doing drugs or selling drugs or something like that. Right. So in that case, statistics show that black people and white people are just as likely to use drugs. You know, they're equally likely to use drugs. White people actually are marginally more likely to use drugs. So then you ask, wait, by population, blacks are only 13 percent of the population. Well, why aren't there a vast amount of more white people in prison for drug crimes and then you have to start looking at policy right that's why i'm big on policy because i think all humans are equal more or less i really i really do believe this to my core i believe we're all created equal so if you got incredible disparities in any particular thing in society i have to say whoa what's the law or the cultural policy or whatever that causes this to be so so when you look at um You know, Bill Clinton era uh, 1994 crime bill, um, you're talking about the three strikes rule. You're talking about mandatory minimum sentencing. So it's a mandatory minimum sentencing um, for the usage of crack cocaine. But for uh, but for powder cocaine, um, you might get a slap on the wrist um, because, you know, Who's the who's the who's the demographic that uses the powder cocaine? More Anglo Saxon people, right? Who's the people that use the more more of the crack cocaine? More people of color, right? So people And are,
0: income disparities too. And right? income disparities.
2: Yeah. So you would get you would get two to three times more prison time for using crack cocaine. Something about that is wrong. And then the mandatory minimum sentencing or if you do this particular drug or sell it, you mandatorily have to do twenty five years. I don't believe in incarcerating somebody that has an addiction. Like, would you do? Do we incarcerate alcoholics? But we incarcerate people with drug addiction. This person has a problem. They, they. I've read a book called "Chasing the Scream," and they talk about the number one risk factor for people that are addicted to drugs is early childhood trauma. So we have a whole group of people that have early childhood trauma. Anyone that's ever worked with the prison population can attest that these people have early childhood trauma. I, I right. we
0: talked earlier about yeah my experiences of working in the prison, mm-hmm. and that's absolutely right. Ninety-five percent of all the women in prison have been sexually abused or mm-hmm. raped. At and a we young choose age.
2: to incarcerate yeah. this group. Something about that, fundamentally, in my head, I say that's wrong. So when Bill Clinton started the 1994 Crime Bill, um, he needed to get something that was more populist, something that people in middle America could get around when um, Hillary Clinton was referring to her own citizens as super predators. She called them super. She said, there's a new class of people called super predators. I don't know how you call your own citizens super predators, by the way, but they were, they were doing all these things. So people were very scared about drugs. There's a lot of propaganda going on at that particular time pertaining to drugs. If you look at, look up an individual called Harry Anslinger, Harry Anslinger actually, um, he worked like for the uh, I don't want to say the drug enforcement agency, but something that was in the nebulous form of the drug enforcement agency. And the reason why he really fought and pushed for marijuana to become illegal. They put out propaganda that if women smoked marijuana, it would make them more likely to go into the black ghettos and sleep with black men. So it was a completely racist reason and ideology. And all this is public information. None of this is, is is Jesse Ventura conspiracy. Like this is fact. Right. So when you look at all these things. You have to think really critically about, whoa, we really got some policy things wrong and it exacerbated, you know, disparities, you know, and like I was saying, I was talking about like marriage rates and stuff like this. All these things sign to, you know, people say the big problem in the black community is that there aren't any dads around. Well, let's look into that. Why aren't there any dads around? You can't divorce dads not being around from the policies that I just talked about because after slavery, black men were more likely to be married to their uh, to their to women than white women white black black women were more likely to be married than white women after slavery. So what happened? You have to look around the 1950s you got to look on the war on first the war on poverty. And then and you got to see how that, you know, discriminate that that made black families worse in many regards, because the war on poverty was like, OK, look, if you want to be able to get any type of public assistance, we know you as a woman are working two jobs. You need public assistance. If we come into your house and we see a size shoe that's over 11, we're taking away your benefits. So now, even though I have a man, I can't marry him and I can't bring him in. I have to stay in order to. I have to stay single in order to get these benefits. So there's many policies that discriminatorily tore apart this community. And then when you look at the actual words of 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 a J. Edgar Hoover, um, the head of the FBI, he literally, you know, talks about black people in such a derogatory way, and talks about his own inclinations to damage the black community. That I say a lot. There's a lot of policy that animates the problems that we see today and things that need to be ameliorated because the things I'm saying right now are not public knowledge. They exist on books with dust in them. And they're usually talked about with people with gray hair.
1: I think that that the time has come, though. I think that, well, first of all, the fact that marijuana standards of marijuana uh, are now easing. And that right. they will no longer because if you got arrested for pot for the third time you also went to jail. It's horrible. It's horrible. Life in prison. Horrible. But now, going on? but now this thing, these standards are relaxing a little bit, mm-hmm. and because of the legality or the increasing legality of mm-hmm. marijuana around the country, mm-hmm. that will solve that problem.
2: But can I speak to that real of quick? Of course. One thing that's really difficult with that is we want to make you know marijuana legal in places like Colorado. So now, like more like. Hipster type of, you know, more white guys, you know, mostly are the ones that get their dispensaries. But don't you see a contradiction that you see have so many black men and, and Hispanic men that are in prison doing significant amount of times? Well, you know, just some some rich kid said, I'm going to make a dispensary, and now we're making a killing on that money. hundred percent. We need to do something. Right. Get all those people. If you're going to make this legal, you take everybody out of prison, and you say, look, I'm giving you a $5,000 grant to start your own dispensary. I'm sorry that we locked you up. Or, or some, uh, that's just an overgeneralization. Yeah, or whatever
1: you give them to get them out. But I I think that there will come a wave because the prisons are overcrowded, and it's expensive to see somebody there. Mm-hmm. I'm reading and starting to hear little titillating things about the idea about the the people that were swept up for marijuana convictions in the three-strikes law, mm-hmm. that they will now have an opportunity to go back to court and to be heard and theoretically to be let out of jail, which it would be, be let out. It would ease the population of the prisons. And they need to be let out and they mm-hmm. need to have their records struck clean that these aren't felonies. Right. So that we're, we hope that that happens. But the other thing that I hear more and more about – is that, and and I don't really understand this, but household okay. formation. Sure, sure, sure. In your community, mm-hmm. you know, living down in Compton, the mm-hmm. household formation mm-hmm. where you have a husband and a wife married mm-hmm. and they have their children mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about the trends in the community in that subject.
2: Sure, my neighbors to the left, nuclear family. Neighbors to the right, nuclear family. Neighbors that uh, that live across the street, a nuclear family. And the neighbor, neighbors at the cul-de-sacs, it was mostly nuclear families husband and a father right the divorce rates in the united states in general have gone up right so anything that hits the u.s always hits the black population even the worst because they have the less amount of uh, you know capital of money of resilient economic resiliency right so divorce rates across all of the united states and the breakdown of like a nuclear family has happened amongst all racial groups. Right. So clearly it will be more exacerbated amongst people that have the less likelihood to, to be able to get good jobs and good education. So I would say that's pretty much what explains that. I think yeah, that it's a symptom. Like, you know, the, the breakdown of, like, you know, black families and stuff. Uh, it's, not the, 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 it's not the disease. It's the symptom. It's the symptom of a larger disease. I don't think black fathers or single mothers are to blame for these things. These so things are symptoms.
0: We were also talking earlier about just the whole gang mentality and stuff. Okay. So then what comes... In when nuclear families break apart and you don't have parents that are keeping you on the straight and narrow, mm-hmm. talk a little bit about the culture of gangs and where we're at with all of that.
2: Sure, so the culture of gangs, I think, um, I, I think we discussed this a little bit earlier too. Um, pretty much, you know, I, I think they look at a significant risk factor for gangs and, and gun violence is education that's that early, early childhood education and then jobs, right? You can't find jobs. a job. Right, you can't find a job. You you don't have literacy levels. You got early on in your in your childhood, you were given the worst opportunities educationally, and then you know black boys are much high uh, much more likely to get you know thrown out of class or put on you know ADHD medicine, even if that's not you know if they don't actually have a real diagnosis because a lot of it is um subjective, right? So all these things contribute to you know maybe you get an early childhood uh. You know, arrest. So now, you know, you're 18 years old. You already cannot vote. You can't get a job. You have a strike on your on your record. You know, clearly, you know, what are you what are you going to turn to? You know, this is what this would create that. So I was pretty much saying in in places that are jobless and in, where, where there's joblessness, there's hopelessness in these places. The same, I'm pretty sure, and I'd like to study this in further depth, the same reason you see people joining the the alt-right or you see them joining the Mm. Ku Klux Klan in these places where all their jobs are being automated away and they feel like nobody in America and they feel like, you know, wealthy, uh, they call them liberals, the wealthy so-called liberals don't care about their plight. They turn to those extreme groups. Right. So in the same way you see people in, in the same way uh, in the inner city, people you could ask young black men, do you think these people care about you? I mean, you got a, uh you know, this you got a mayor that's a Democrat or this person, whatever it is. Do you think they care about you? They probably tell you no. So in these places, the the people that feel like nobody, as Mark Lamont Hill described, mm-hmm. those individuals, you know, join those gangs and stuff like that. As, as I say, it's a it's a it's a symptom. It's not the disease itself. It's a symptom of the disease.
0: It and it becomes a social – like a social family oh. for them to – with just not great values. Mm-hmm. It's it horrible me, values. Yeah. Yeah. It
1: seems to me uh-huh. that you have a political future. And oh, listening no, to no. You, <laughs> no. I, I want to – <laughs> No, no, Perhaps. really. I'm just – compl- I mean once you get through your education mm. with your profound knowledge of the understanding of the flaws in the system and you seem to be a middle-of-the-road person. Right. You have you thought about this? I mean, why can't you be Pete Buttigieg? However (laughs) you pronounce his name, Pete Buttigieg. Thank you. Um, You, No, it's it's funny you say that. Like for
2: me, I don't fall into any like particular political ideology because it can get very dogmatic. No, you
1: seem in the center,
2: right? Why can't
1: you be an independent? um, Why can't we take a mind like yours with an understanding of sociology and an understanding of education and make you a mayor?
0: Then,
2: you know, maybe it's possible. I, I think I think anything is possible. I'll just – I'll have to talk it over with my team, you know, get, to, get, to, get together with my wife, get together yeah, with my – d- Smart man. <laughs> yeah, I got, I got to Wait, go talk it we over don't do with do You with that may
0: find – because you're so articulate. No, and, you. you know, just to even add to what Rebecca was saying, you're historical – like you've really thoughtfully oh, yeah. studied historical significance opinion, I'm of how – yes, of all of this has happened. Um you So your your intellect is incredible. You oh, may find you. <laughs> as you continue to share uh, your opinions and ideas of fixing these plates that more people will gravitate to you and you will start to feel some energy come oh, to you man. about leading.
2: <laughs> man, that would be crazy. I think um, – like I think it would be incredible to, to engage in, in politics or something like that. It's but such for a now,
1: cesspool but at, we need somebody like you to come yeah. in and
2: – Thank you. Thank you for saying that. I take that as a kind compliment. But for myself, I think there's many more things I want to really dive into. And like I, I have about about seven or eight more years of studying to do like and I know that sounds crazy. No, You'll had,
1: only be 32 yeah, then. You're right. still going to be a baby.
2: <laughs> right. I, I mean, in, in my I not mean that disrespect.
1: No. You're not a baby, no, but you. you're going to be a baby <laughs> in relative
2: terms. Right. No, I, I feel like in my own mind, I still have at least seven, eight, nine. Years more studying to do to really hammer out how I feel about certain things, what works or what doesn't, or else I'll just be going off opinion and dogma. And opinion and dogma does not work in politics, but it dominates politics on both sides. Will you
0: have time while you're doing your studies to, um, you know, we talked about our mutual friend, Gavin McNeil, like to to become um, in partnership, whatever that looks like, with other people in the community doing these things? Do you have enough time when you're studying to build your network of great people?
2: I do. I'm fortunate enough to have that type of time. Like even at Oxford, you know, I was flying out of England going to speak at, you know, different places in the United States. Or, you know, even now I have like, a, um you know, I always have like a little miniature speaking tour uh, lined up where I'll, I'll be doing a convocation at Fayetteville State University in September. I'm speaking at like a National Boys and Girls Club conference, a, a media conference, a couple of different things,
0: you know. I just want to, before we get, get back to your book. So tell us a little bit about your book. Um, what... What do you want, you know, what's the best that would come from the book for you? Mm. Like, what do you want it to?
2: That's a good question. Um, so I, I think about why did I write this book, you know, especially at you I know, know, 25 right? years yes. of age. Yes. And um, I think that's just a testament to how much life I've lived already up to this point, right? That is book worthy, you know, uh, according to a lot of people that encouraged me to write it. Um, but I think one of the big things, you know, just personally, I wrote this book as a um, as a poem to my mother. And if she liked it, that's good enough for me, right? But um, it's also, you know, it with, with the wherewithal of, like, you know, if this book can inspire, can give hope to one person, you know, that was having a hard time holding on to it, then it was worth it. Everything that I've been through... Everything that I've seen, everything that I had to struggle with, if it can give hope to one person that was sitting in, a, in, a, in the middle of a bed, you know, on a garage, in the garage and saying, wow, I think I'm going to give up. If it can give hope to one person, I think it was more than worth it. So that's kind of my that's mindset. That's lovely. For you soon. need
1: to have people know you and listen to your mm-hmm. story because it's an unbelievable story.
2: My name is Kylan Moore, and I'm incredibly thankful to be here today on the Say It Forward podcast.
0: Thank you. And we're incredibly happy to have had you. So thank you for your time. You are an incredible young man. And your future is so bright. Mm. uh, Thank God. That, you know, you're going to change the world. And it's just an honor to have had this opportunity to get to know you and interview you today.
1: Thanks for listening to Say It Forward. Help us grow by subscribing to our podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes or at www.sayitforwardpodcast.com. Don't forget to rate and review us on the iTunes store or like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram.